Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to episode 175 of the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I am Tim Robertson, the host of the Observer's Notebook and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Hey, thanks for downloading and listening. The ALPO collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomena and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it going. If you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon. You can start by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast. You can find out more by going to www.patreon.com slash observersnotebook. And if you'd like to join the ALPL, membership begins at only $22 a year. Find out more at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And you can also find us on Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And this podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. And if you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, please subscribe. That way you won't miss another episode. And now, we're talking something interesting. <laughs> we always do. But this is Halley's Comet. Why the heck are we talking about Halley's Comet now? Tune in. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to this edition of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. And we have a return visitor to the podcast, uh, Carl Hagerother, and he's also going to be talking about a return visitor to the Earth. And that's Hallie's Comet. Welcome back to the uh, podcast, Carl. Thanks for having me, Tim. Yeah, now, we're, we're talking Halley's Comet, and you approached me with this subject a while back. What makes it important right now? Well, it's kind of interesting, because as we all know, Halley's Comet comes around like once every 75 years or so. So mm -hmm. it, for a lot of people, it's a once-in-a-lifetime object. For a lucky few, it's a twice-in-a-lifetime mm -hmm. object. And the last time the comet was around was back in 1986, where unless you're probably about you know, 45, 50 years old or older, you probably didn't see it. So mm -hmm. the younger folks may not have seen it. For me, that was actually the first comet I ever saw. Oh, my. So 1985, 86, I was 12 or 13 years old. Okay. Um, first time I used the telescope by myself. It's kind of cool. Ah. I completed these and then found Halley's Comet. But the comet's not coming back till 2061. So why are we talking about it here in 2023? And the reason for that is on December 9th of this year, 2023, the comet is going to reach what we call the aphelion point of its orbit. And aphelion really is just the furthest point an object is from the sun. So on December 9th of this year, the comet is as far from the sun as it's going to get, which is about 35 astronomical units, uh, one astronomical units, the distance between the earth and the sun. So 35 astronomical units is 3.3 billion miles out, 5.3 billion kilometers 
And to kind of put it in perspective with the planets, it's just beyond the distance of Neptune. Okay. What's really cool about this aphelion point is this December marks the exact midpoint between the last return in 1986 and the next return in 2061. So from here on out, the comet's coming closer to the sun. Okay. Now, is it visible through any telescopes right now? So right now, if you wanted to kind of look in the general direction of where the comet is, it's about four degrees slightly south-southeast of the head of Hydra. Okay. So it's kind of in between the head of Hydra and the bright star Procyon, which is in Canis Minor, maybe a little bit below that line. The comet was last observed, as far as we know, about 10 years ago with the very large telescope down in uh, Chile. This is a European telescope. Mm -hmm. And it was observed at magnitude 28. Oof. This year, it's probably more like magnitude 29. So I don't think anyone's going to be observing it from their backyard. (laughs) But it's not out of the realm of possibility that one of these large telescopes or even a James Webb you know, space telescope could detect it. I don't know if anyone's planning to do that. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if some if someone really, really tried with one yeah. of these large, you know, eight meter, sixteen meter, whatever telescopes, they would see it. But I don't know if anyone's actually planning on doing that. Yeah, because this this is kind of the thing that you know people would take as a challenge, right? You know, I, I it'd be good press. Like, it would be good PR. It probably it would be really good PR. Help science at all? Because, like I said, we observed right. it ten years ago. We can observe it ten years from now, twenty years from now. Mm-hmm. The same, just a little brighter. Okay, cool. So what makes Halley's Comet so important? So the cool thing about Halley's Comet is that, you know, we have bright comets, I want to say all the time, I wish it were all the time, (laughs) but at least every decade or so, we get a nice bright comet that's Mm -hmm. obvious to the naked eye, to naked eye observers. I mean, that's becoming harder and harder because of light pollution. But if you go back to historic times, you know, about roughly once a decade, you had a bright, brilliant naked eye comet. And Halley, because it comes around every 75 years, is probably the only periodic comet, the only comet that we see come around within, you know, human lifetime or or somewhat that gets bright enough to rival some of these really bright long period comets that we see. In fact, Halley's Comet, you know, like I said, we last saw it in 1986, but it has been seen at every return going back to 240 B.C., Wow. So that's basically every 70, 75, 80 years from 240 BC, Halley's Comet has been observed. Okay. And that is a record that is really unrivaled. Hmm. There obviously are comets that come around much more often than every 75 years. I mean, we have Comet Enki, it comes around every three years, but nowhere near as bright. In fact, never was bright enough to be seen or detected with the naked eye before you know telescopes were invented. Okay. And then there's other really bright comets like Ikea Zhang that comes around every three, four hundred years that can become pretty brilliant or Pons Brooks mm-hmm. that comes around, you know, also every 70 years, maybe not as bright as Halley, but those comets aren't seen at every return. So there is something kind of magical about Halley's comet in that not only is it one of the brightest comets that returns, it also has an orbit that is allows us to actually observe it at almost every return. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it the first comet to have a name? I don't know if it's the first comet to have a name. It's definitely the first comet. It's 1P Halley, and that means it's the first comet to have been recognized to have come back more than once. Okay. Um, It's interesting when we talk about Halley, because 
there's kind of a little bit of, um, con- I'm not going to say controversy, but no one quite knows how to pronounce uh-huh. Halley's name. Um, some people say Haley. Right. Haley's Comet. Um, I say Halley. Mm-hmm. That's what I was always we, taught, too. Yeah. Right. Though, if you probably listen throughout the course of this, I might mix up pronunciations. <laughs> it turns out there's also been research done that suggests it might actually be more like Hawley's Comet yeah. or Horley's Comet. And Halley's uh, name was spelled in different ways back then. And, of course, a lot of it is just English has changed so much. The pronunciation right. going back to, you know, 400 years or so. So it's it's hard. And, of course, we didn't have tape recorders back then. <laughs> But I usually say Halley's Comet or Comet Halley. Um, yeah. Yep. Very cool. Um, it is it is interesting that it is Halley did not discover Halley's mm-hmm. Comet. Um, Halley was the one who recognized that Halley's Comet comes back. Um, if you go back to antiquity, there were people who believed that comets might be, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like another planet going around the sun or going around the earth. Uh, but for the most part, people followed uh, Aristotle's lead that comets were atmospheric phenomenon. Right. They were up in the upper atmosphere. They were vapors that were being set on fire, stuff like that. Hmm. Uh, once you got to the Renaissance, there really was an interest in actually observing these objects and plotting their, their you know, their motions on the sky. And then eventually that led to people making, trying to do parallax observations. You know, with parallax, you can figure out how far away something was. Mm-hmm. And that really led to uh, Tycho Brahe's observations of the Great Comet of 1577, when he realized that this object, due to its lack of detectable parallax, must be pretty far away. It couldn't be in the atmosphere. In fact, it was further away than the moon. And that was kind of the uh, the first real the aha moment. This thing is an astronomical object and not a meteorological phenomenon. Right. And then, of course, with Kepler and Newton and you know laws of gravity, laws of orbits. And ultimately, you know, Newton figured out a way to determine the orbits of celestial bodies. And it was Halley who then took, I think it was 24 comets that had been observed in the preceding uh, centuries before. And this is 1705 when he published his report on this. And he published orbits for 24 comets and realized that I think three of them looked like they shared the same orbit. And in fact, it looked like they were spaced about 76 years apart. And so he determined that these three objects were the same object. They were the same comet and then made a prediction that the comet would come back in 1758, which it did. Though, unfortunately, Halley did die before the the comet returned. So he never actually saw kind of the vindication of his uh, prediction there, confirmation of it. But, that, but that's basically how it got its name, too, because he's the one to predict the return. Right. And it's actually pretty rare. Most comets, as we know, are named after the discoverer, whether mm-hmm. that's an individual or it's one of the, uh, you know, the, the big professional surveys. Right. There are a small, very small number of comets that are named after the orbit computer. Halley, of course, being the one we're talking about. 2P, Enki, is another one. That was one that had been observed four times before it was recognized as the same object. And then there's another one, uh, Cromelin, that was the later on. It had so many discoverers on it, they decided, hey, we'll just shorten the name to one and name it after the person who recognized all these objects are the same. Okay. Interesting. So when it starts coming back in, what, you know, are there already predictions out there to what it's going to look like in 2061? Or 
Well, we, we, we definitely know when the comet's coming back mm-hmm. and we know what its path on the sky will be. And we can make some kind of educated predictions as to how bright it'll be. Now, this comet, you know, has been, I mean, in order for a comet to have been recognized in the pre-telescopic days, it had to be at least brighter than about third magnitude. Mm. Now, you always hear, even nowadays, a new story, oh, it's a naked eye comet because magnitude six. Like, right. not yeah. really. First of all, you have to have really dark skies that has to be far from the horizon. And just because you can see a sixth magnitude star, which is a point source, yeah. you don't that's you can't necessarily see a sixth magnitude comet, which is something big and diffuse. Right. And so really my, my kind of uh, rule here is that if you can see down to say six magnitude or even in your telescope, you can see a 12th magnitude star, you might see a 10th magnitude comet. That, that you know, really magnitude. makes sense. Yeah. So right. And so in order for an object to have been noticed by people back in pre-telescopic times, it must have at least been about third magnitude or brighter. Mm-hmm. And for it to have been followed for, say, a week or a month or two months of time, it probably got pretty bright. You know, we're talking like zeroth first magnitude. Mm-hmm. And we do have records of Halley's Comet, like I said, going back to 240 B.C., Uh, Most of the early sightings were in Chinese Mm -hmm. and Korean records, some Babylonian records. You do get a few reports coming out of Japan and Europe and the Middle East and stuff like that. Um, By the time you get to the Renaissance era, you know, 12th, 13th, 14th century, you get a lot of more European observations. But it is interesting how often this comet appeared at what are considered pretty important times in history. Mm -hmm. Like in the 66 AD, it, it basically returned just before the uh, the start of the Jewish war, the Jewish revolt against the Roman Empire that saw the destruction of the Second Temple. Hmm. It was in the sky in 451 AD, not too long before the Battle of Shalons, which was when a uh, confederation of Western Roman and uh, German troops defeated Attila the Hun and basically stopped Attila the Hun from conquering all of Europe. Hmm. Uh, most Famously, it appeared in 1066 AD, not too long before the Battle of Hastings, when the Normans overthrew the Anglo-Saxons and took over the Kingdom of England. And so the comet's been around quite a few times, and there have been times when the comet has been probably truly spectacular. Uh, The return of 837 AD, at that time, Halley's Comet's orbit was aligned in such a way that the comet could come very close to the Earth. And that year, the comet came within 0.03 AU of the Earth and was reported to be as bright as Venus with a tail that stretched halfway across the sky. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And then you, you talk about those those episodes in history. That's why comets, a lot of times, were thought to be, uh, you know, omens of doom in the right. past. I think uh, Halley's Comet, and I'm forgetting which year, but was excommunicated by the Pope. Oh, really? During one of those returns. I can't remember which one. <laughs> How do you excommunicate a comet? <laughs> I don't know, but it came back. So. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, and, it, and you talk about the close approaches. In, or in 1910, we went through the tail of the comet. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So before I alluded to one of the things that makes Halley's Comet so interesting is its orbit. Mm-hmm. Now, Halley's Comet rotate, goes around the sun. It revolves around the sun pretty much in the opposite direction as the Earth. Um it has an inclination of 161, 162 degrees, which means it's almost going around in exactly the opposite direction. Now, if you've ever kind of paid attention to a lot of short period comets, mm-hmm. 
you notice that they don't always, re- even though they return, say, every five, six years, they're not always visible every five, six years. Mm-hmm. Quite often, it'll be good one return, and then it won't even be observable the next return. And then the next return, it's good. And then again, the next return's bad. And the reason for that is if you think of, you know, all the planets and the comets kind of on a race course, you know, going around the sun, you know, constantly making that left-hand turn, just like NASCAR, if you're looking down from the north. And they're all kind of going similar speeds. So if you're going in the same direction as the Earth and you end up perihelion close to the Earth, you're going to be close to the Earth for the tire apparition. If, on the other hand, your perihelion's on the far side of the sun from the Earth, and again, you're going at the same speed kind of at the Earth, you'll always stay at the far side of the sun ah. when the comet's close to the sun. And so you'll never see it. Okay. Because Halley's Comet's racing around the sun in the opposite direction, it almost doesn't matter when perihelion is for the comet. Eventually, the comet and the Earth are going to pass relatively close to each other. And so that's one reason why the comet was observable at every apparition going back to 240 BC. And it's very possible it was observed before 240 BC. It's just our records are very, Mm -hmm. are not as good back then. And it wouldn't surprise me if the comet isn't in some of the records. It's just back then they would just say stuff like, we saw a comet this year. Well, that's not enough to think it definitively. You need to know what, what time of the year, what constellation it was in, stuff like that. And so you asked about the, you know, how good is it going to be in 2061? Before I answer that question, I want to talk about why it was so bad in 1986. Okay. Okay. So here's a comet that was observable to, you know, the basic person with the naked eye from 240 BC up through 1910. And yes, in 1910, it passed almost directly between us and the sun and was actually quite spectacular. Mm -hmm. Big, bright object with a large tail. 1986 saw probably the worst placement of the comet relative to the Earth during that entire 2,500-year span the the comet's been observed. Perihelion for the comet occurred almost exactly on the opposite side of the sun from us. Now, there's something good about that, in that most apparitions the comet kind of flies past the Earth either before perihelion or after perihelion or sometimes even around perihelion. It'll pass between the Earth and the Sun. But the comet itself, though it might be spectacular and bright, was probably only observable for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Even if they were telescopes back then, it might only be observable as a relatively bright, you know, what we think of as a bright backyard object for a few weeks. <clears throat> Here was a time where we passed close but not super close to the comet before perihelion when it was still coming inbound so you're able to follow it in telescopes and if you can think back to like you know fall 1985 we started picking it up in august september and followed Mm -hmm. it through october november into december right and then lost it in january lost in february because on the other side of the sun which unfortunately was when it was at its best and then picked it up again, March, April, May, June, mm-hmm. when it again passed pretty close to the Earth, but not super close to the Earth again. So here was an apparition that, at least for a telescopic observer, a backyard observer, you could observe the comet for many, many months. Right. But the problem was when it was at its best, when it was at its brightest, it was either invisible or it was far from the Earth. 
And so even though it did get up to second magnitude, which, which on paper sounds great, mm-hmm. you know, second magnitude is a nice naked eye object, at least from the Northern Hemisphere, it was always kind of low on the horizon in right. the muck. I mean, to be honest, I was growing up, I was in New Jersey at the time, and I remember going out in March and with my binoculars from the high point of Oakland, New Jersey, mm-hmm. and like two fields below the comet was the outline of Manhattan. So oh, it wasn't exactly the, 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 you know, the darkest sky. <laughs> Not a good portal sky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, the problem with the 1986 return was that when the comet was at its best, it was not visible or too far from the uh, the Earth. Okay. So I enjoyed, I enjoyed it back then. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, for me, it was my first comet. So yeah. I did observe it a few times, but I, I and I was definitely into comets. I've been yeah. waiting a long time to observe a comet, but I didn't really study it. I didn't mm-hmm. observe it as much as I would if it had come a few years later when right. I was more experienced. Okay. So 2061 is the exact opposite of 1986 in that here in 1986, the comet was on the other side of the sun at perihelion. In 2061, the comet is exactly lined up with us on our side of the sun. Now, this sounds like this should be really great. But you're still fighting the sun. You're still fighting the sun. So when it's closest to us, it's... Not in the sun, because it'll be a little bit above it. But it's an apparition where the comet won't be observable many months beforehand, because it'll be too close to the sun. And this is the problem with when the comet shoots between us and the sun, is that it's usually in the sun. You don't really see it. So what will happen is the comet will be a very low object. All of a sudden, it's just going to start rapidly brightening over the course of like a week or two or three, fourth, the third, the second, the first magnitude, boom. At its best at perihelion, it won't be observable from the southern hemisphere at this time, but it will be a northern hemisphere object. And it could be as bright as zeroth magnitude. Now, if you take the brightness behavior of the comet in 1986, it suggests it should peak around maybe magnitude one and a half. But the nice thing about a comet like Halley, and this is also one reason why Halley has been so bright for so many apparitions, is that it's a habit of traveling between the Earth and the Sun. And yes, that means it's close to the Sun on the horizon, it's low on the horizon, sometimes it's even fighting twilight. But because it's kind of in line with the Sun, it's at what we call a high phase angle. And the phase angle is the Sun-Comet-Earth angle. Now, at high phase angles, you actually get this phenomenon called forward scattering. The dust will actually scatter the sunlight towards you. It will actually make the dust brighter. If you've ever looked at a beam of light shining through a window, Mm -hmm. or even in the old days when we used to have overhead projectors, you'd always see little pieces of dust floating in the light beam. Right. And if you've ever noticed if you're kind of looking kind of in the direction of that light source, whether it's the sun or it's the overhead projector, you see a lot more dust Mm -hmm. than you would if you were just looking at a 90 degree angle or something like that. And that's forward scattering. Okay. So many of the greatest comets in history weren't necessarily, I mean, they were probably bright to begin with, but maybe weren't the brightest comets in history, but they were at such an angle where this dust scattering really enhanced their brightness. And in the case of like McNaught's comet back 2007, Mm -hmm. 
uh, there's like five magnitudes of enhanced brightness because of that forward scatter. Wow. I didn't know that. And that's what happened in 1910. The comet passed really close to the sun and had this enhanced brightness. In 2061, we might be able to expect eh, maybe half magnitude to one magnitude of extra brightness in addition to the brightness the comet would already have. And it helps that Halley's Comet is a fairly dusty comet, which is another reason why it's been you know so easily observable over the years. So the 2061 return will be pretty much a short return for the average person, and that the comet will probably only be observable for maybe a month. And at its brightest, it might only be a week or so, but it could easily be a, you know, zeroth magnitude object pretty close to the sun. And this would be uh, July, August of 2061. So we'd also unfortunately be fighting the the murky summer skies up here. Mm. Um, Of course, that's assuming that light pollution doesn't make it so we can't Uh, see anything in the sky by then. This is 2061. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll only be 105, so right. <laughs> we'll do a podcast on it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's unfortunate that, you know, 1986 was probably the worst apparition of the last 2,500 years. Mm-hmm. 2061 is better, but it's not great. If somehow we can freeze ourselves or <laughs> they find a way to extend our lives a couple hundred years, 2134 will be awesome. All right. <laughs> I'll mark that down. 2134. And then 2209 will probably be the worst of all of them. Oh, my. Well, <laughs> yeah, will we have any skies like 1986, by then? but worse. <laughs> oh, my God. Crazy, crazy. Yep. It's interesting, though, because it's 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 a comet that everybody who's interested in comets knows about. And, you know, it's, like you said, if you're of a certain age, you've seen it before. Yep. And it's something I will never forget. You know, I was involved with the International Halley Watch that Steve Edberg right. and his crew was doing back then. So. I submitted a bunch of observations to them back then, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's like a check mark, you know, in your astronomy life that you've seen. Oh yeah. And the great thing is um, if you've, you know, want to see Halley again, or even want to see it for the first time and you don't want to wait, you know, another 30 something years, there are two opportunities per year to see pieces of Halley's comet. Yes, there are. Because the comet has produces two meteor showers. The Eta Aquarids, which uh, peak in early May, mm-hmm. and the Orionids, mm-hmm. which peak in uh, late October. And the Orionids, at least for us in the Northern Hemisphere, is a little easier to see. Um, and I've w- watched many Orionid meteor showers, and anywhere from 20, sometimes it can be as good as 60 or 70 uh, right. meteors per hour. Of course, that again is assuming that you're in a pretty dark sky. But yeah, you can see pieces of Halley's Comet that were, in the case of the Eta Aquarids, were really and in case of the the Aquarids and the Orionids were released either maybe a thousand years ago, fifteen hundred years ago, or in the other case, up to like twenty five hundred, three thousand years ago. They're released by the comet back at times when the comet's orbit came really close to the Earth. But the the meteor particles that were released at those years continue to come really close to the Earth. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting because I think the last pod, one of the last podcasts I did was with Bob Lunsford on the Orionids, right? And we and we talked about how these comet being apparent. Yeah, and what's really cool too is that you know because we have this almost like forensic evidence because in a way meteor showers or comets kind of leaving behind a trail of where they were in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we can use this to try to figure out you know okay how did Halley's comet get there? You know, right now you look at the orbit and it doesn't come really close to Jupiter. 
and you go, how did this object get kind of captured onto this type of orbit? The fact that it's, we, we know it's a large nucleus because mm -hmm. in 1986, we sent, I think there were five or six, five spacecraft that were specifically built and designed to encounter Halley's Comet. The closest of which was the European Jato spacecraft, which passed within a couple hundred kilometers of the nucleus and actually got pictures of the nucleus. We were able to tell that the comet, you know, was about 10 kilometers across. So it's a pretty large size nucleus there. I think the exact dimensions were 15 by 8 kilometers, which are pretty big. And then there were a bunch of other uh, a Russian and Japanese spacecraft that passed further away. And though here in the United States, we didn't launch anything in specifically to observe it, though we were going to launch some telescopes on the space shuttle to observe Halley's Comet, but unfortunately the Challenger accident um, put an end to that. Mm -hmm. We did have a few spacecraft that were already up there that were able to make some more distant observations, like the Pioneer Venus probe was actually perfectly placed with its ultraviolet telescope yeah, right, to observe right, the right. comet at perihelion, stuff like that. So we know it's a pretty big nucleus. We know it's very active. It's got dust jets galore. Mm -hmm. um, of course, it gets pretty bright, which means it should be a fairly young object to still be that active. And I think the thinking right now is as they, you know, as, as uh, orbital dynamicists kind of model the orbit, it looks like the comet might have been captured by Jupiter maybe 10, 20, 10, 15,000 years ago. Oh, my. It was probably when it ended up on that orbit. And at some point in the next couple of thousand years or so, I'm not exactly sure how long, eventually it'll probably come too close to Jupiter again and get thrown onto a different orbit or maybe even get thrown out. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, talk about spacecrafts and comets. I want to congratulate you, too. You did a lot of work on the OSIRIS-REx mission. And this last month, we successfully landed in, uh, in, in the desert. And it sounds good what's going on. Oh, it sounds great. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, I was a part of OSIRIS-REx going back to mm -hmm. kind of the beginning, the genesis of the idea of the mission, which was 2004. So you're almost, you know, 20 years or so. Though I haven't been on the mission for the last couple of years here. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, almost everything worked great with that mission. Yeah. There was really no problems. And as it turns out, we collected more sample than we were expecting. Yeah, that's what I heard. And yeah, so I mean, it's kind of funny that the most recent quote unquote problems are, oh, it's going to take longer to to basically categorize <laughs> and exactly. sort all the sample because there's too much of it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because Dolores Hill is yeah. our meteorite section coordinator. She's working on the Osiris-Rex recovery yes. things. Mm -hmm. So I've reached out to her in a few weeks. She's going to be doing a podcast with me to talk about things she can talk about. Yeah, so, great, great. <laughs> things that are being released that she can talk about. So right. I'm I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Everybody should be looking forward to that podcast as well. Well, there's not much more to say about Halley's Comet. Um, Halley is the, the chief member of what we call the Halley-type comets. And Halley-type comets are comets that come around, say, every 20 to 200 years or so. And while they, they may not be related to Halley's Comet any more than they probably all formed in the same basic part of the solar system, and they may have all kind of followed similar pathways to these particular orbits, uh, Halley's Comet isn't the only, it may be the brightest of these comets to come around, but it isn't the only Halley-type comet that you can see with relatively small aperture telescopes. And at least in my lifetime, I've seen comets like 23P Borson Metcalf, that was back in 1989. Mm -hmm. Uh, there was a 122P Devico back in 1995, 
But as kind of a teaser to the Comets of 2024 podcast, two Halley-type Comets are coming back in 2024. Oh, my. Uh, 12P Pons Brooks, which is already being well-observed by a lot of amateur astronomers because mm-hmm. it just experienced a significant 4 or 5 magnitude outburst. And it will get up to about 4th magnitude in the about April time frame, 2024. And there's also Comet 13P Olbers, which is a comet that will only get up to about seventh magnitude. But at least in 2024, you'll have the opportunity to observe two more of these Halley-type comets. And if you have been observing C2023E1 Atlas, which just came around, got up to about eighth, ninth magnitude only a few months ago, uh, kind of 2023, that was also a Halley-type comet. Oh, my. So Halley isn't the only Halley-type one out there. <laughs> yes, it's by far the most famous and the brightest. Okay. Well, we will dive into comments of 2024 at a later time, and that's always one of our most popular podcasts of the year, too. So I'm looking for that conversation. Same here. All right. Well, Carl, it's, again, been a pleasure having you on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Tim. Right. Keep up the great work here. Thank you. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. Again, I want to thank Carl Hergenrather for coming on and giving us a little discussion about Comet Halley. Hope you all enjoyed that. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook on the 1st and 15th of every month. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please give us a rating and a review. I would really appreciate it. And you can also listen to us on Apple Radio, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon Echo, Spotify, And we're also on our ALPO YouTube channel. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon. You can give up to $35 a month where you'll receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I'd like to thank the two producers of this podcast, Steve Seedentop and Michael Moyer, for their continued generous support of the podcast. Thank you very much, gentlemen. The link for Patreon as well as the link for ALPO is in the show notes. If you'd like to get a hold of me, my email address is cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at, at @observersnbpod. Until next time, I hope you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening. <laughs>